and they have some wonderfully incredible children. Everybody in the family, it turns out, has some kind of superpower. The son is lightning fast. The daughter can become invisible and create her own personal deflector shield. Elastigirl's body can stretch and twist and do incredibly powerful things. Mr. Incredible is unbelievably strong, fast, indestructible, and, well, incredible. Before all the real fun stuff starts happening in the movie, we are introduced to the idea that in the city where we first meet Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, there is a whole league of superheroes running and flying around protecting civilians like us. Just think how superheroes could be useful right here in Warrington Presbyterian Church even this morning. If, for example, something crazy happened in this church this morning, you know, religious, supervillain kind of stuff. I don't know, the elders started acting like toddlers. <laughs> the ushers started tripping people as they walked into the sanctuary. Church members started fighting over who got to sit in which pew. Or the choir refused to sing on key. We could expect that Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl would run down the aisle and save the day. Now, one of the problems for these superheroes is that someone always messes up what they just fixed up. The supers are getting tired of having the same people and restoring the same property over and over and over again. In an opening monologue, Mr. Incredible, talking to a reporter, laments the fact that every time he intervenes on our behalf, we people who never seem to learn from our mistakes just create another situation so that he has to run over and intervene yet again. He looks at the camera and says, no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get in jeopardy again. Sometimes I just wanted to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. I feel like for me, I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for just 10 minutes? You know God has to be frustrated up there in heaven watching us humans do the same old ridiculous stuff over and over and over again. As we make and remake our mortal messes, I think I can hear God shouting from the halls of eternity, don't y'all make me get up off this heavenly throne and come down there. <laughs> Can't you keep your religious room, your political practices, your economic engines, your social situations clean for just 10 minutes? Goodness gracious. First, there was the Joseph episode. In that intervention, Isaac's family makes a mess. God puts Joseph into place to fix things with Pharaoh and save all of Isaac's people in Egypt to boot. And then Egypt enslaves Joseph's people, so God has to send Moses, who intervened with some of the coolest superhero movies ever narrated. But then God's people start hurting each other, so God sends Joshua and then judges and then prophets to straighten the people out. But then the people still refuse to act right, so God becomes human and comes to set the world right directly as Jesus of Nazareth. And then God's people, the very people God is trying to save through Jesus, make a mess of that by killing Jesus on a cross. Over and over and over again, God comes running like a proverbial cavalry coming across the hill just in the nick of time, and every time God's people find a way to get right back into the mess, God just got them out of it. So I started to wonder if God ever gets tired. And that wondering brought me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Here at the end of all things, According to John the Revelator, 
when things are as bad and as uncertain as they could possibly get, God intervenes. Rome is on the rampage. And instead of standing up to Rome, people, even God's people, are not only finding ways to look the other way, but finding ways to get on the Roman bandwagon and participate in the Roman project. The world is working its way away from where God wants the world to be, and God then steps in and puts the world back on track. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the plagues, the angels, the battles with the dragon, the destruction of old hurting ways and the construction of new ways of living and being in the world are all a part of God creating a new heaven and a new earth that are dramatically different from the old heaven and the old earth. Tired of fighting the same old stuff. The crazy old cowardly, faithless, lying, idolatrous, murderous stuff that even folk in his seven churches are doing. God decides to reclaim and refashion until the old stuff is new stuff and the old people are new people. This time what God fixes is going to stay fixed. Our human brokenness will no longer mess up what God fixes up because this time God promises to fix us. But it's not all about just turning bad situations into good situations and keeping them good. That certainly has to fatigue and frighten and frustrate. There is also so much that is so wonderful to celebrate in the biblical materials and in life. There is so much good stuff that must be kept good. There are so many good people who must be kept good and, if possible, even made better. Listen to these biblical stories, the stories of the prophets preaching and empowering God's people. The story of Ruth finding a relationship with God across racial lines. The story of Rahab finding a way of entry into the promised land for Joshua and his people. The story of the Syrophoenician woman who finds a way into Jesus' heart against all odds. The story of Bartimaeus who stands up when everybody tells him to sit down and shut up. The story of Peter who denied his Lord and came back from that personal devastation to become the rock upon which Jesus built his church. The story of Paul, who once persecuted Christ believers and turned out then to become arguably the most influential Christ believer of all time. The stories go on and on of these new and wonderful things that God causes to happen. It seems like God never wearies, never gets tired. It seems like throughout history, whenever there comes a crucial moment, a signature moment where great decisions must be determined, new roads must be run, new possibilities must be perceived, new people must be pinpointed. In such a time as this, in our community, in our church, in our world, perhaps in your very church, in times laden with anxiety and fear and yet pregnant with possibility, God finds a way to intervene and save the day. I wonder, though, whether it can keep happening. Can God keep this up? In the world, in the church, in my church, in your church, gathering Sunday after Sunday, how do we make this Sunday feel new and exciting for this congregation? How will this congregation go out from this place and make the world out there feel new and exciting for what God is doing in the world? It is at a moment of a question like this, that when the Christians in John's seven churches are wondering, well, you know, God saved us when God sent Jesus, but can God save us from the power of Rome now? It's a moment of a question like this 
When I myself personally wonder, well, God has done so many wondrous things in my life, my parents, my wife, my children, my seminary, my students, I have so much to be thankful for. Can God keep my life as safe and secure and loving in the future as God made it in the past? It's not a moment of a question like that when people in our world, people who look at this church for guidance, people are asking, well, God saved us from political tyranny with a democratic republic, from racial destruction with civil rights, from rampant disease with medical science, but can God save us now from the politics of fear and continuing great racial unrest and oppression of women and weapons of mass destruction now? I suspect if you're not asking it aloud, you have to be asking it somewhere in the depths of your spiritual consciousness. Who in the world could keep up the kind of wonderment that God demonstrates in the biblical materials? Not even God can keep saving the day, day in and day out, over and over and over again. Surely the Christ believers in John's seven churches beleaguered by that great red dragon, the Roman beast from the sea, and the Asia Minor false prophet had come to the point that they were unsure that even God had the power to keep making the kind of changes they needed to keep seeing in their world and in their personal lives. And that's why they're crying out, How long, Lord? Their world had gone so wrong for so long, they were unsure whether even God could make it better. The opposite feeling is just as worrisome. Sometimes it's not a world that has been going bad. Sometimes it's about a world that's been going so well for so long that when it comes time for a change, one wonders whether God, even God, can make better what was already so wonderful. God, you can't keep this up. God knows the stakes behind the fear of God's people. At a time like this, the people need more than a priestly or a prophetic word. At a time like this, the people need to hear directly from God. And that is why here at the end of the book of Revelation, for only the second time in the entire book of Revelation, God speaks up directly, straight from the heavenly throne. At this point in the book of Revelation, we have heard the Lamb of God speak. We have heard angels speak. We have heard the resurrected dead speak. We've even heard some furniture speak. But we rarely heard God speak. In fact, God spoke only once before at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And now at the end of the book, God figures, well, it's time I speak up again. And what does God say? See, I am making all things new. See, did you hear it? See, listen for the divine tone. See. God is essentially saying, I told you so. You didn't think I could do it, but see? Some of you thought things were so bad they could never get better, but see? Some of you thought things were so great they could never get better, but see? See? Isn't that great? Even God gets to say, I told you so. I don't care what anybody says. Everybody wants to have at least one public smug moment in their lives when they get to tell somebody I told you so. They get to tell their know-it-all friend, their frustrating enemy, their competitive co-worker, their demanding boss, their self-righteous family member, once in a while, even their loving spouse. See? Told you so. This see is God's I told you so. 
you thought that when Rome said it was the be-all and end-all of everything and that nobody could stand in Rome's way, you thought Rome was in charge. Well, see, I, not Rome, am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I don't just stand in Rome's way. I make the way for Rome and everybody else. At the beginning of time, I made the way. In the present time, I make the way. In the future time, I will still be making the way for Rome and for you and for everyone who has ever been on this human way. All you've got to do is stay on my way. Look around you. See that new heaven and that new earth and the vision I am giving you? See the vision of that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband? I did that. I am doing that. I will do that for you. So you thought that as your God, as the God of all creation, I had reached the summit of my being and my doing, that I'd run out of gas, that I stopped all the bad I could stop, that I started up all the good I could start up. Well, look around you. Yes, look at Rome, but look and see what I have done and what I am doing. I am still doing it. In fact, I'm doing it better. Don't ever doubt that I can keep doing what I started doing. I did it at Alpha. I will do it at Omega. In fact, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What I began, I finish because I am not only the one who starts life, I'm the one who finishes life. And I have started life and I will finish life for you. Look around and see all the newness that continues to break out all around you. There was new yesterday, there is new today, there will be new tomorrow, new will renew, and it will happen for you as the Alpha and the Omega, I guarantee it. What does that mean? Is your life feeling tired? Is your spirit feeling run down? Is your life feeling like everything is going the way it should go and you're worried that something is going to happen to mess it all up? God is saying, I've got this. I've got you. I've got every situation that can happen to you. I see the beginning. I stand at the end. And in the middle, I am in charge of bringing something new for you. You know, at this moment, I don't know what John is thinking, but I can tell you what I'm, I was thinking. I'm thinking about God's posture up on the throne. You know why I'm thinking that? I'm thinking because something amazing is happening here. To this point in the biblical record, no one, not even Moses, gets to look at God and live. But John does. How do we know he's looking at God? He's looking at the one seated on the throne, and the one seated on the throne speaks directly to him. So I'm wondering, what's the posture of the one seated on the throne? How is God seated on the throne? Because you can tell a lot about a person by body language, right? You can see it in athletes. They wear their emotions on their bodies. When they are winning, they are so pumped up, it's like they're going to jump out of their bodies. They can't stand still. They have to run and hit each other and wave their hands and stomp their feet. And I remember being in a basketball game, a college basketball game. I saw a player shoot the ball with a half second left in the game where his team was down by two points. While his three-point shot was still arcing through the air, the buzzer sounded. And when that shot went through the hoop and switched the net, it was like he got hot all of a sudden. He ripped off his jersey because who can keep their clothes on when they just won the game at the buzzer? Who can stand still? He starts running up and down the court, and his fellow players are running after him and catching him and swamping him, and it's almost like they're trying to hurt him. On the other side, though, there's pure deflation. 
Seven foot tall giants who can leap through the roof now appear shrunken and shriveled and ready to go lay down and take a nap. You don't need to know the score to know who won the game. All you have to do is look at the body language of the people who played the game. So I'm wondering, what was God's body language up there on the throne? Was God slumped over? Was God twitching with excitement? Was God's fist balled up in anger after all that had gone on in the book of Revelation? After all that Rome had done and God's people had not done? God has plenty of reason to be sitting on the edge of that throne seat with fury in those eternal lives. But I'm not sensing that. Because now, despite all that has happened, I'm thinking, given what John is saying, that God has remained hopeful throughout. God loves these people. God has unleashed the Lamb to save these people. God has dispatched the Archangel Michael to battle for these people. And the multitude of these people who no one can count because their numbers are like the sands of the sea are standing before God's throne, worshiping God in heaven with the same fervor they showed when they followed God on earth. Just before this text that shows God sitting on the throne, John says he saw God creating that new heaven and that new earth. Body language of newness. A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Body language of hope. And God standing with God's power, creating a world of only light where all the darkness had been driven away. Body language of victory. It's at just this time after this game-changing victory of unprecedented proportions that John says he now looks and sees God on the throne. God is like the basketball player who hit the winning shot at the buzzer, except this is the new heaven and the new earth that comes at the edge of time itself. I suspect God is sitting on the edge of the throne seat because God is excited, because God knows what's coming next, and what comes next starts with God, and what comes next is the glory of something brand new. That's the gift. Something brand new come by God. And we should celebrate that. But oddly enough, we're often afraid of the new. Our body language in front of the new can be hesitant and resistant and fearful. I remember my body language. The first time in middle school, a new thing, when I asked a girl to dance. Talk about hunched over and shriveled up. I must have looked like I was two feet tall because that is about how tall I felt when I walked over to her, eyes bulging, heart pounding, face sweating. And what kind of body language is that to confront a new thing with? I didn't make it within 10 feet of her. She looked at me and she giggled and I turned on my heels and I raced for the gym exit and I went back home where I was safe and I could pretend I was a six foot five inch tall movie star athlete astronaut. Now that's some body language. Too bad I didn't carry around with me on the dance floor. The body language of churches and people in churches is often like that old me asking for the first dance. Afraid of the new, so we hunker down in the past. We celebrate what we have been because we are afraid of treacherous possibilities of what we might be. The world is a dangerous place. We want church to be sanctuary that protects us from all that danger. So our body language to the world around us is often the body language of a community cloistered in on itself, trying to relive past moments of glory in the faith, afraid of the new possibilities of living in new ways and doing new things in the faith. The world is an ever-changing place. Old friends dying out of it, 
new children born into it. Old jobs and vacations ebbing to an end, new jobs and new lives blooming into a beginning. Old and treasured people guiding our destiny, new and unproven people positioned in their places. Old and dangerous social and political and economic and people choices disturbing our world, new and challenging social and political and economic and people choices confronting our world. Newness brings as much fear and anxiety as it brings hope and energy because new is wild. New is challenging. New is uncharted. Whether it is a political new, a religious new, a personal new, a spiritual new, new is cause for concern because new is unknown. No one knows new. It is hard to trust what is new because you don't know what is new. Who knows whether new can keep bringing what is good for us instead of what is destructive to us? Who knows whether new can keep the good going? God knows. Because God knows the new as well as God knows the old. Because God the Alpha, who created the old, is God the Omega, who scripts the new. God is already in the new waiting for us, waving us forward, telling us, come on, I've got this. Conquer your fear of what you can't know, what you can't see, because I know and I see for you. The new belongs to me, and I promise to give the new to you. We are an Alpha and Omega people because our God is an Alpha, is the Alpha and Omega God. So, whether it is your personal life, your church life, your professional life, your family life, your political life, or your prayer life, Straighten up, stand tall, and get your back up. Walk out into the new like you own it, because you do.